right, so we had to bring in an expert today to really talk about how to get your offer accepted in the markets that we're in right now. And I couldn't think of anyone better than you, Nancy Chu. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A pleasure having you. Now, to put it into perspective, Nancy sold over 1,200 houses on the buy side end of the deal. So that means that you've represented 1,200 different buyers in accomplishing their goal of home ownership. So kind of getting everything going, Nancy. So what does someone need to do to try to give them a higher probability of them having their offer accepted? Okay, so you can take this question from a perspective of an actual consumer or the perspective of the agent. So I'm kind of going to make a differentiation here. Sure. I was going to say that the biggest challenge you've got is trying to work everybody away from what the media is telling them. Mm. Because everything that I'm seeing on the media is like, house prices are plummeting. Rates are off the charts. Prices, no all this. Yeah. I'm going to tell you right now, we just literally this morning did an exercise where we pulled just a random swath of houses from Somerset all the way to Essex. Mm -hmm. And we were just like, let's just see how many houses that are selling, that have sold in the last year, have sold in multiples. Every single town that we looked at, it didn't matter from North Plainfield to West Caldwell, every single town was between two-thirds to three-quarters of the homes sold, single-family homes, were in multiple offers. Wow. And at higher than so 100%. Two -thirds. Yeah, so in other words, the sale-to-list price ratio was over 100. But that's a great point that you bring up, because if you're out there and you're looking for a home and you don't put an offer, and you have to expect two-thirds of the time, the offer or the sales price of that property and is you're probably going to go know. over. The truth is you're going to know because the moment you walk into that open house and you see 20 other, you know, people there hungrily, you know, rolling their fingers around and going, you know, you're going to know that it's going right. to, you know, my experience has been in a market like this, if I get 100 people through a property, mm -hmm. 25 of them to possibly 30 of them are going to offer. Wow. There's a 25, 30% offer rate right now because if the house is any good, don't forget, we're down like 40 to 50% in inventory. Sure. Okay, when I started this business, any I would look at a town and be like, oh, good, 79 houses. That same town I go look at now, there's 25 right. properties for sale. Right I mean, now. we were talking before the show, it looks like houses that are going to be sold this year could be 4 million. Uh, that is way low. Yeah. That is a much lower. I mean, we haven't seen numbers like that since like the 80s. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's not a lot of inventory. So whatever people are fighting for, it's a smaller pool, but it's also a bigger pool of people fighting, unfortunately. Right. right? Like we all know that generationally, the, the millennials, they have come, they have shown up, they are ready to buy, they, and have, they have babies yeah. and they have money right. and they're ready to go. So they're fighting for just a smaller pool of inventory. So I have a question for you. So if you have if you have 25, 30 people that are putting an offer in on the property, what do you think can help move that towards the top of the pile for okay. that better way to put it? Let's say this. First of all, um, you, <laughs> my experience has been with most consumers is they want to believe that they know what they're doing, right? right? So I actually have a really specific script that I use, and I'm just, I'm very like, so I'm just going to ask you point blank, Greg, you know, how's your um, learning curve? Is it good? Do you have a good learning curve? I'm Are a you... little bit of a slow learner, Nancy, to be honest with you. Okay. Well, I was going to say, if you have a good learning curve, if you say to me, I have a good learning curve, I'm going to be like, great. So that means I can just tell it like it is, sure. and we can skip the steps where you lose three houses. <laughs> because if you say to me yeah. you don't have a good learning curve and you need to learn this yourself and self-discover, yeah. fine. We can lose three houses and you can self-discover your way to where you have to be. Sure. Or we can skip that and I can walk you through all the numbers. 
It's the data part that's mm. you know important, and the data part's going to make your eyes cross. I get it. If you're not a data person, I have so many clients. They're like, we're not data people. You know, they're like, we're feelings people, and I'm like, that's great. Feelings don't get you houses. Data right. does, right? So. In every single town and every single house that you show within a town, there's going to be a median, you know, sale sale to price, you know, sale to list sure. price ratio. And if I can pick any town and say, let's pretend I say West Caldwell just because it was there and I was looking at it this morning. They have a, you know, 109% median, wow. yeah, for in terms of in terms of median for stuff that goes over. And now to, to put that in the perspective, oh, for sorry, everyone, average. if you're not if mean, you're not sure, not median, average. It's the average, okay. One hundred nine percent average for everything that goes over ask. And to put that in a perspective, that means if your house is theoretically listed for hundred thousand dollars, it sells for one hundred nine thousand. Right. Okay. But and to be prepared for that in that particular area. Yeah, but just so you know, what you also see at the same time is what are the outliers, right? Mm. So in that town, for instance, the truth is the highest sale to list price ratio we've seen is 133%. Wow. So you might have an average, right? An average mm. of 109, but houses have gone to 33% over there. And so the question really becomes, how desirable is this one particular house? Will it perform like those? Mm -hmm. And it's really getting the, the, the buyer to understand that the asking price is not really meaningful. Look, I'll be the first to tell you that, you know, they just sold a house in Michigan. I don't know if you saw, but there was a guy, like he was, I think he was a listing agent out in Detroit and he was like, I'm listing this house for a dollar. It was a boarded up house that had been vacant for 10 years. Yeah. And he was like, I already know I'm gonna sell this for you know 50,000% over ask. Right. Because it was on for a dollar and he knew right. it was gonna sell for between 44, 45,000 mm -hmm. dollars. Sorry, 50, 55,000 dollars, mm -hmm. right? And instead of saying, well, this is the number one, he basically said, I'm opening it up to the floor, here you go. They had international bidders. Wow, there just were create people, that auction mentality for They created for it. a, just a, you know, I mean, look, they created a real movement around right. it. And like I said, people, I mean, it exposed the property to people that have never, investors that would have hmm. never seen it before and opened up, you know, markets to people. So I think... How do you feel about that? You know, I kind of... I kind of like honest. it. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. A lot of the pricing that you see now, that's... It might not be a dollar, but if a house is listed for three seventy nine in right. Hillsborough... You know, and it's a ranch, and it's you know was probably renovated. Let's pretend it's a seventeen hundred square foot ranch mm -hmm. in Hillsboro, decent piece of land, not in a flood zone, nice flat yard, adorable, well maintained, but you know wasn't updated since like maybe the last update was maybe like nineteen ninety seven or something like that, mm -hmm. right? But very well maintained, and that house is listed for three seventy nine. That's not a three seventy nine house, right. and you walk in. And I and it's so funny. I'll walk into a house like that and just be like, "What is this listing agent thinking? Three seventy nine is a joke." Right. And the client's going, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, "And I can just easily point to the three houses. This is when you got to know your market. I can point to the three houses and say, "Do you see how these three houses? You see where their list price was and where their sale price is? Mm -hmm. All the houses of this ilk." sell for between five and 550. Mm -hmm. I said, what difference does it make if it was listed for 449 or listed for 379? Right. Is it still selling for between five and 550? Yeah. Just because that is the avatar for this price. Yeah. This house is the avatar for this price point in this town. And then if they can start to under, if the client can understand that and they stop thinking about, 
I'm paying over list. I'm like, what is list? And I can use that $1 story to help explain. That's such a good point. It really is a great point because it, it talks about the data points that you were yep. talking about earlier is really kind of understanding everything that's going on in the market. And the list price, you know, what kind of bearing does it really have? It's all about what the market's pushing for It doesn't. It's about for what anyway. the market's going to bear. Yeah. And to be honest, most of the towns right now, you know, in order for you to win, you're really pushing your purchase number past its appraisable capability. Right. Not because the house isn't worth it, but because, you know, all that data is like a nine-month, six to nine-month lag, mm -hmm. right? All of your best comps are currently under contract. You know, the houses that close, you're looking at comps past six months. So that comp that closed six months ago that you can still use was technically sold two months before that and was priced three months before that. Right. I mean, half the data you're looking at is a nine-month lag, right. right? And, you know, one of the challenges we have is this under contract where everyone's very secretive, and they have to be. I understand, you know, the way it works in Jersey. So, you know, you're really secretive about it, but that's your best comp. Right. And so it's really just this incredible, with every single client, it's just incredible education process that you're starting from the ground up and being like, all right, let's go. Here we go. It's like, well, I'm going to get you from kindergarten to graduate school in like three visits. Can we get you through there? Um, well, and you do a great job of laying it out right up front. Well, right up front, here's the process. Here's what we have to I, understand. I have to now. And I would yeah. tell you that some of the clients, you know, look, not everybody responds to me going, look, you know, what's your learning curve? Talk to me about this. Mm. Um, most people appreciate it when I just cut straight through. Um, there are some people, of course, who don't love it and we have to take a different approach. But it's really about getting them to understand, don't worry about these. None of this is meaningful. What's mm -hmm. meaningful is this house, where does this house fall in terms of condition and size in relationship to what has sold in the past three to six months in this town? And um, introducing that concept early enough. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things I've noticed with agents is that they often, you know, it's a, it's a hard, yucky conversation. And agents don't want to have it, right? Like they're just like, I don't want to talk about this. So what you end up doing is you show the house. I've asked, I've, I, I ask agents this all the time. I'm like, I'm like, so hey, you have a client here. Your client can only ha spend up to 900000 mm -hmm. That's their financial limit. I'm like, you showed them a house that's on for seven ninety nine, you know? And I've said to them, why did you show that house? And they were like, well, it's on for seven ninety nine. They can go up to nine, <clears throat> so there's a hundred thousand. And I said, okay, but you, but in this particular town, that house avatar is a one point two house. Mm. Why are you showing them this house? Right. And the thing that drives me crazy is you hear agents say, well, you never know, and I go, yes. Yes, you do. It is predictable. It yeah. is extraordinarily predictable. Um, there is nothing wrong on the surface with this house. Well-maintained, re renovation is okay. There's lots of different things that will tell you. Stop having, because what you're essentially doing is you're giving this client this false hope that this house is within their reach. Right. So you do that enough times, the client's going to stop trusting you and eventually walk away mm -hmm. from you because they're going to say, you clearly aren't leading me properly. Yeah. You're letting me see things. So what you think is a kindness is actually not a good thing for the client. That's such a great point because you have to, you have to know that. To your example, if I know the $700,000 listing is going to sell for a million dollars, Showing them the wrong house. You're showing them the wrong showing house. Showing them the wrong house. You're showing them the wrong house. I think that there's a couple of different ways to approach it. I've seen agents. And it's different by market, too. That's yeah. where you have to really know your market and understand what I, those houses are going for. I've seen agents take two different approaches. The first approach is show them the house, let them get their faces beaten 
so that they know. And then you can say, see, mm -hmm. and then try to educate them from there. Because there's this belief that like they have to lose the first one because you know it's hard. To, it's really hard to get them to to perform at the level you want them to, you know, right out of the gate. And often, if and when they actually do, mm -hmm. then there's usually this incredible snapback at some point during the process where they're like, I think I'm overpaid, you know, um, and they freak out on you and you're like, no, no, you did good. You're, I'm so good. Your, your learning curve is fantastic. You know, but then, you know, you've got this, and, and if you have, a, you know, an attorney that kind of wedges his way into there or mm -hmm. her way into there, you can really destroy that relationship. So I was going to say, for me, I have to, I, I'm less inclined to be like, do you need to, like, I have to, I'll say to them, how fast do you want to move, mm -hmm. right? Like, I'll just ask point blank. I'd rather say, look, if you need to dip your toe in the water, I'm going to tell you point blank right now, I'm happy to write you a $900,000 offer on this. Mm -hmm. Please be aware, I think the house is going to sell between 1.1 and 1.2. Mm -hmm. So I just want you to be prepared. How many times do you think it takes from a consumer standpoint, Nancy, for them to, to get that? No, it depends. It depends. Oh, on, again, going back to your learning curve. It depends on the client. Yeah. It depends on the client's learning curve. Right. And sometimes you have clients who are just like, I'm simply not going to do it. Right. They have a mentality or a mindset that will prevent them from you know, participating in this market, which mm -hmm. means they either have to leave this market right. and do something else, you know, or 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 they have to wait for seasonality to kick in. Sure. So I've got clients now who are going to buy between November, December, January because they feel like they don't have any competitive capability mm -hmm. in any other market. Mm -hmm. So we've got clients who are like, winter's here. Winter We've is been waiting here. for this all year. We've been waiting for that. Yeah, no. We yeah. have clients who are like, we know this is the only time we can win. Right. So, so you know, you just have to sort of change that. You have to change that approach, right? So now when we're putting the offers in on these properties, how do you feel about guaranteeing the appraisal? Do you think it's critical to do? I'm going to say that if there's multiple offers, if you're not yeah. guaranteeing the appraisal, as a listing agent, I'm not going to pick you. Right. Like, I'll be honest. Like, I actually, I think you and I talked about this at some point, but I had this one house. Yeah, don't get mad. I, it was listed for eight ninety nine. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to sell for probably around one three. One four. We wow. knew. We knew. Yeah. We knew that was. But I. But that was sort of the prevailing behavior of that market. So we priced it mm -hmm. accordingly in order for it to do what it was going to do. Mm -hmm. Whether you're, you can be angry about that. You know, clients can be angry about that. But it's simply the the behavior pattern of that market. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really interesting because when I ran the comps, I didn't have square footage. I had a square footage challenge there. But there were so many other advantages to the property that I knew it was going to sell past its appraisable capability. Mm -hmm. And I remember I told everybody who said they were going to offer, I was like, listen, you want to offer more than 1.3? I'm okay with that. Guarantee me an appraisal floor to 1.3. Right. You have to guarantee me an appraisal floor to 1.3. I, I knew I was safe to 1.3, anything past that. Mm -hmm. So the offer we ended up taking was 1.45 mm -hmm. on that particular property. And they actually guaranteed me more than 1.3. But four of the offers that came in were above 1.3. Mm -hmm. And I'll be damned if not every single one of them came in with proper appraisal gap coverage. Right. For sure. And, and, and I love the way that you lay that out with appraisal gap coverage. Where it's not, you're not waiving the appraisal. No, there's appraisal gap no, coverage in there. No, you have to there. do the appraisal. Yeah. You're just saying that you guarantee the difference if the, you know, That's house. So, so it's for 1.45 right. down if, to 1.3, I'm still buying it. Exactly. If it appraises at 1.3, you're still, you're still paying 1.45, you know. Um, of course, 
you also know that if it appraises for below 1.3, then you know all you have is the, the gap coverage difference. Right. So you're definitely not getting 1.5, you know, 4.5 anymore. But um, but I think that that's a really fair way because historically, I would tell you we've had some behavior patterns where people would make these like you know really high offers, and then in you would hear attorneys say things like, "Well, we'll just let that appraisal bring it down." Well, right. sellers caught on to that, and they're like, no, <laughs> you know, we want the best person for the house, not someone who's trying to manipulate us. Mm -hmm. And there are enough, and I hate to say this, but sellers have all the advantage. They have all the supply. Yeah, that's true. They have all the supply, and buyers have all the demand, and there's literally nothing you can do about it. They have a massive, this is their game right now, Yeah, it's their market. No it's question. their market for sure. And it's amazing to me that I think that, you know, buyers always look for ways to game that. There's very little way to game it other than just give the seller what they want. It's so funny because, um, you know, even a longer day on market is no longer a guarantee that there's negotiability. Right. It could just be a seller saying, no, I'm waiting for the offer with the terms that make me happy. Right. Because they can afford to hold on <clears throat> to that property until that happens. Right. So it's just, it's been tough. I would tell you that in addition to appraisal gap coverage, you know, you've also got remediation waivers, of course. You can always use those. Um, From an inspection think, standpoint. Yeah, I think yeah. you have to be really careful. A lot of attorneys will walk back, you know, your offers, um, and they will get into the ear of the client and then try to walk back what you've offered. And it's, and it's, it's a tough situation because... I know that as a listings, from the listing side, I chose you because of your terms. Right. So if you try to walk those back, my immediate response is going to be, "What are you doing? Right. You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna want to I'm gonna want to drop you and move on to the next person who mm -hmm. isn't going to mess with us, right? Because sure. um, you know, if you make the offer, stick with the offer. Don't walk it back. That's the surest way to ensure the deal falls apart. Um, but there's also, also it's overall terms. To your point, that's the overall terms of the contract. The so terms it's are not the same. always about price. It's about it's terms a combination. Well. The yeah. terms are huge, and there's so many. Like the thing about the 26 leverage class, which is how we first met, is you know there are upwards. Um, there are there's an kind of like an almost like an unlimited number of terms that you could use. Right. There are. I mean, they're kind of infinite in some ways. They're there are so many different ways to kind of, what's that word, shear that sheep, mm -hmm. that cat. cat. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. I'm sorry. And it's, it's so funny because a lot of those terms are going to be about, they solve the problem. Okay, I'm going to make this, this is a very important sentence for me. Mm -hmm. And any offer that you make to a seller has to basically pre-handle any objection the seller might have to any part of your offer. Mm -hmm. That's how you do it. You're answering their objections, right? Yeah. So you're answering their objection about number. You and, answer and you're, their and you're answering it ahead of time. Yes. You're in answering it in the terms of the yep. offer that you're so putting in. So in other words. That's a great way to put it. That's a way to think about so it. So I already know what the rebuttal is going to be, so let me make sure I address that. So, so there's nothing to say it. no about. That's right. So yeah. in other words, the seller goes, no, no, no. And then they look at the terms and they go, okay, okay, okay. If you take away all the no's, yeah. what you're left with is, let's take this one, yeah. right? Which means you do have to, most of the time, you do have to have the best number, mm -hmm. but you also have to have, you know, very compelling terms. Most people are terrified of their inspections because they don't know what the inspector is going to find. Mm -hmm. I, I want to like, I want to reinforce what you just said because that's a critical nugget that Nancy just said. Critical nugget. Critical. So, <laughs> it, no, it's the fact that you have to understand what the objections are going to be ahead of time. If you understand what the objections are going to be ahead of time then from the seller's side, yep. you address them up front, everything flows smoothly. Yep. 
Yep, it's yep, when yep. you as start long to as they don't walk it back. To nickel and dime it, right? right? Then you got problems, and it becomes a back and forth, and nobody likes that. No, it's it like always a starts off back with the wrong and, foot. Exactly, it's the wrong foot start off. But if you can handle, listen, listen this is there's a very powerful book. It's Psychology of Money. Mm -hmm. If you have not read it, I don't care. Listen, you don't want to read the book. I don't care. Read the last twenty five pages of that book. It gives you a literal breakdown. Like one of the biggest challenges that I see is sort of generational misconnect, like you no know, disconnects, right? Oftentimes you'll see, you know, older folks, maybe boomers selling their house and the buyers are all younger, maybe, you know, millennials, right? And it's so interesting because for a lot of millennials, they're like, well, I want to put 10% down and I'm going to do the rest in mortgage. Mm -hmm. And then you'll present that offer to the, you know, to the seller and the seller will say, I'm what 10% down, they can't afford this. And I go, actually they can, that's the whole point. They want to hold on to their cash because perhaps they would like to furnish the house or mm -hmm. you know, maybe they need a second car, they want to. And it's- Maybe so, they want to leverage the tax deduction. You never yeah, know what you reason never know it is. What it Absolutely. Is. But it's very interesting because, so you'll have a seller who then behaves a certain way because, they're, because their expectation, I understand, in terms of the way that their relationship to money mm -hmm. could be that borrowing is considered a negative. Right. That if you're borrowing because, because you, you don't haven't have it. saved enough, right. you haven't. In the meantime, you know, a millennial is thinking most of my money is sitting someplace making more than the interest rate. Yep. So the less I put, you know, the fact that I don't want to take something out of something high performing to put over here for an 8% rate. Does that make sense? Like yeah. it totally, it makes sense for both. But the problem is, is left to their own devices, they sort of talk through each other. So, but you know, but that brings up a good point. So how do you communicate that in writing? So we're putting the offer in there and you make such a great point about the generational disconnect with money. So how do we make sure that the seller, who's a boomer, is clear as to what the buyer's intentions are in our example as a well, millennial? Well, I'm gonna be honest with you. I've done this before where the, you know, if the, if the purchaser has, say, actually has 20% down, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing stopping me from writing a 20% down mortgage mm -hmm. and then letting the seller know that if we decide to do 10%, we can. Right. Like, in other words, we like, I, mean, I may have to just sort of bridge the gap and say, we can do it. Yep. We may choose not to. So, you know, yeah, I here's mean, proof, of proof of funds, we can do Exactly, sure. making sure. Um, and sometimes it's just having the right partner on the listing side who can explain. Because I've done this before where I'll say to, you know, like, let's say I've got the buyer and they're like, why can't I do 5% down? Why are they so upset? They're going to get their money in the end. And I go, well, you have to understand what it's like for them. You know, they were raised in, you know, this is when they were born. And during the time in which they were young, the stock market wasn't a thing. Right. So they have never considered that no, being a safe about their place mattress to put money, their money. people. It's exactly. a whole different animal. Exactly. So I'm like, this is a very Conservative, different mindset. Every, yeah. So everything that they bought probably early on, they probably bought their houses mostly in cash when they first bought them for mm -hmm. $50,000 because it was GI tract housing. I'm like, you have to understand yeah. that that's the mentality. So they don't understand what you're doing. And you're saying that I've got stuff that's paying at 18%. I'm not taking my money out. I'm like, they. it's a different... No, yeah. it's so true. But even, you have to bridge that gap for them so that they yeah. understand. And even when you look at the way money works from a mortgage standpoint, if you right. go back 40 years ago, the way the mortgage market works today, that's not how it worked no. back then. <laughs> so you couldn't put down 5%. I mean, FHA has been in place for a long period of time where you put down 3.5%. Right. But it wasn't, it, money wasn't as accessible in the mortgage space. Yeah. 
40 years ago as it is today. No, I was going to say, there has been a surprising, I don't, I, it's not meant to sound pejorative, like loosening of standards. I, I don't mean by loosening, it's just a broadening of product and standards. Broadening product, making important. it more money more accessible to well, people. Well, because people are different. I was going to say that, you know, I do think, I just want you to know, I have purchased myself, I don't know, probably upwards of 15, 16 properties mm -hmm. in my life for me, okay? Um, and of all of that, oh yeah, no, I have a house problem. It's almost like shoes. <laughs> Americans are like, I love shoes and purses. And I'm like, I'm like, I love houses. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I have only ever used a 30-year fixed mortgage three times. Mm. There's so much loan product out there so that's true. better used. Seven-year adjustables, interest-only oh loans. Gosh. There's so many different things you, that you can I do. I have always used adjustables yeah. um, to give me sort of the maximum... It's just it's the maximum benefit of the rate versus the time of ownership in which I will choose to own this house. Sure. So it's all very planned out for me. I don't buy a house and go, how long am I going to own this? I often you know, will buy a house and be like, I think I'm going to own this for about five years. This is what I'm going to do with it. This is the renovation I want to do. Maybe I could like pull money out. Maybe I can HELOC the money to roll into the next house. So I have very specific intentionality behind how sure. I'm going to handle the houses. But you know, it's not a long-term investment for you. But I know, for me, it's not yeah. a long-term. Yeah, my coach is going to yell at me. She's going to be like, "You need to own the asset. Stop selling them." <laughs> but the truth is, for me, You're there's a serial a, home buyer. I am a serial home buyer. Totally guilty as charged. I I know, I know, and I often vine swing. From house to house, all those things that <laughs> makes you happy, like. Nancy. It, well, no, it just I know it's got me to where I want to be, yeah. right? In terms of, you know, I mean, I started off with thirty thousand dollars that I inherited when my grandfather died, and it was a question of what are you going to do with that thirty thousand, Nancy? And I bought a piece of land in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was a piece of lakefront property. Right. And everyone was like, what are you doing? My sister, my sister bought a car. She bought a Lexus. She still drives it now, so uh -huh. she obviously, so it was obviously it was a good investment for her. But that piece of land that I bought for 30 grand, when, by the time I had gotten, like, gotten out of college, that piece of land we sold for $110,000. I bought it when I was like 16. And then I took that money and I bought my first apartment in New York City. Mm -hmm. You're going to die when you find out how much I paid for how it. Much? It's, it was one bedroom right under the Empire State Building, eighty thousand dollars. Wow! Do what's not say anything. What's you know how today? old I am now. By <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's that same place worth today? Oh gosh! Oh my gosh! It was the Nottingham. It, oh my God! It must be one point two. Wow! You know? Oh, I can't even. It was right under the Empire State Building. Gorgeous. In two thousand six, I lost my shirt and managed to drag about one hundred and fifty in equity back out. It was bad. Um, it's a tough market. Oh, that 2000, was, oh, like going yeah, into yeah, yeah. 2008, two years later, no, actually four years later, we moved down here. It wasn't pretty. No, it wasn't it pretty. It wasn't pretty. No. But I always looked at it like, okay, well, we lost money on that house. But we made but so we much came money to, in others. It, yeah. Well, I can't, we came down here. We came down to the area that we're in now. We picked all the equity back up. Yep. So at the end of the day, it was a wash yep. on it. But it's still That's, a hard pill to swallow. It is a hard pill to swallow. But I have to tell you, it was a massive learning. It was yeah. a huge learning moment because I went... Oh my gosh, stop thinking with your, you know, with like, oh my God, I love this house. Start thinking with what can I do with it? I, I had been, the data to your point I at the had beginning, been yeah. lucky before that. Before that, it was lucky. I was flying by gut instinct mm. and I just happened to have really great gut instincts. 
that move was a really dumb move because I was affected by how much I loved the property versus is this property, am I buying this property below median? What is my renovation capability? What is it worth once I'm done with it? You know, I tend to buy, now I only buy houses, which I did before, I just didn't know. I buy them well below median for the neighborhood. Isn't it interesting that maybe it's been in the industry for long periods of time. We've both been in the industry for a while. Like I don't really have emotional attachment not to homes no. anymore. I used to. I used to. Not anymore. Not anymore. I'm not emotionally attached. Hey, when are we selling this place? When are these kids out of school? We're going we're well, to sell it. We're going to go do something is, else. Well, because my home is now where my husband and my son live, right? right? Like that's, it shifted at some point. It, it went from about a brick and mortar yeah. building and more to, you know, this is our home. You know what? And just from an overall paradigm standpoint with it, is you go from looking at it as, oh my gosh, this is the house that I'm living in to this is the house. This is where my family's going to be. And this is an asset that I can leverage over the course of time to make money out of it. And you really have to think of it as, in some ways, you literally grew money out of nothing. Right. It's a house bank that can do so many different things. Mm -hmm. If only people would understand what equity is. Right. It's one of my, it's one of the hardest things to get people to understand, right? Clients come in and they're like, I'm so pretty. And I'm like, pretty is expensive and pretty puts you at the top of that you know pricing spectrum right mm -hmm. so pretty is the first to fall when the roller coaster goes mm -hmm. while if you buy ugly if you buy ugly make it pretty and you make it pretty over time there's so much and they just are so afraid of it i don't really understand that mindset i don't know if it's i think there's a whole bunch of like well i don't know what i'm doing but that's what we're here for sure you know i'm like we have all these people that we can work with to help you with your renovation you know, we have hard money. Right. Our team loans hard money. Like we have a lot of different tools to help you make that happen. And I think it's just a leap of faith of being able to be like, oh, I can do this. I think there's a lot of fear instilled in, in, in buyers these days. That's, so, that's great, Nancy. You know. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how we can make the payment more affordable for people. With some Are we talking about buy-downs? We might. Are we talking about buy-downs? Are we talking about... I think a know. little bit of everything. All right, we'll be <laughs> okay. right back at you, okay. Greg Wareham, Nancy Chill. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham. Produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in and we look forward to catching up with you next week.